I was surprised when I read the book at how this may sound immodest, but I'm not trying to how well it stood up in the terms of the history of it. So I was fascinatingly reading my own book the last couple of days because of you. So I appreciate that. That the definition of Tourette's, it's a syndrome, therefore it has signs and symptoms. It's not always the same in each person. We don't really agree on what the population is of people who we can diagnose. It's a part of the European Diagnostic Code, and Tourette's-like movements are put under obsessive-compulsive disorders. In the Mm. United States, they weren't until very recently because obsessive-compulsive disorders was a psychiatric diagnosis, meaning organic. I think that the idea is to keep an open mind and not to look for a single cause for a complex disorder. Welcome to The Uptick, brought to you by the New Jersey Center for Tourette Syndrome and Associated Disorders, empowering children and adults through education, advocacy, and research by sharing the stories and experiences relevant to the TS community. Welcome back to The Uptick, and thank you for joining us on this special two-part episode series demystifying the history of the Tourette Syndrome diagnosis. I'm here with Dr. Howard Kushner. Dr. Kushner is an emeritus professor at Emory University, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego State University. He's a historian of medicine and neurology and has authored several books in this space, including his 1999 book, A Cursing Brain, The Histories of Tourette Syndrome. The book is well-researched and a meticulously documented account of the historical evolution of Tourette from the early 19th century to the late 20th. In this episode, we'll discuss Dr. Kushner's background as a scholar of neuroscience and history, and we'll give an overview of his book, Cursing Brain. Dr. Kushner, it's great speaking with you today. It's nice to talk to you, Michael. Thank you for uh, reaching out to me. Absolutely. You've done a lot of incredible research in this space, and I want to start by asking about how you first became interested in in Tourette syndrome. You write in the preface of your book about how in the 80s you met a teenage neighbor of yours who had the condition, and I I think our listeners would find this story interesting. This was a time I had just finished writing a book on suicide and depression in America, and I had been trained a bit in psychoanalysis although I no longer had the same attitude toward it as I did then. And this kid across the street, this young guy in his early, his late teens, early 20s, would come over and stand and talk to my son and would have vocalizations. And particularly, he'd have loud things. He'd make loud noises. He said this, they had Tourette syndrome. And I I thought, wow, that just sounds like psychogenic disorder, not, not an organic disorder. So I decided to learn more about it. The more I learned, the more I began to what the etiology was is really uncertain, and that people who were diagnosed with Tourette syndrome had a very tough time of it. And so I thought this would be a good place for me to test this notion of whether it's psychogenic, organic, or whether it even might be post-infectious. I began to work there, and, and I began to be more and more convinced that what we call Tourette syndrome had a inflammatory or somehow or other had some sort of sequel as a result of an earlier strep infection. So I decided to write a grant so I'd learn more about this. And when I wrote the grant, I went to the Tourette's Association in New York, which I didn't know about until I started looking. And they connected me with a woman named Kiesling. And she was a pediatrician at and Brown University at the medical school, pediatrics. Her first name was Louise. And she said, why don't you come here and watch patients for a couple of years and see what's going on? And since I had the grant, I went to Brown Medical School to the pediatric hospital called Memorial Hospital. 
And for two years, I observed the patients and the treatment that they were receiving. And this post-infectious theory was the one that Kiesling was particularly enamored with. So I would sit in and we'd ask the patients, right, Dr. Krishna's writing a book on Tourette's syndrome for our work. Would be if he sat in on your interview. Everyone said yes. And so I learned a lot. I realized that you can look at one of these disorders that are so confusing by looking at by one methodology alone, that psychological methodologies were important, organic ones, familial ones, behavioral ones, and particularly, increasingly, post-infectious ones. And I also learned that not all of the patients had the same etiology, the same experiences, the same underlying conditions that led to their presentations. I think one of the things I really learned from this is you can't talk about patients and their histories unless you actually sit there and listen to them and talk to them and follow them up. So that's how I got there. And uh, I followed Michael, my neighbor, for the rest of the next 30 years. Wow. That led me to the Tourette's Association and to meeting other people with Tourette's. Are you still involved in the Tourette space these days? Not as much as I should be, actually. I, <laughs> I just published a book about three years ago on left-handedness, mm-hmm. which actually came from the studies of Tourette's syndrome, because I noticed that a lot of our patients, pediatric patients, seem more than normal of the population, more than a normal percentage, seem to be left-handed. <laughs> so I wanted to know what was there. So that led a study of left-handedness. And turns out we're as uncertain about what left-handedness is as we are about sometimes what Tourette's that was. So yeah, but I kept moving from one little aspect that I would then blow up into a bigger book. Of reading over the book again, which I haven't done in a while, I realized that I had traveled very far to get to these understandings and in different countries, particularly the French, that see it as totally non-organic and the Americans who saw it almost entirely as organic get treated with things like Nalbol and other major tranquilizers. But when I got into it, the dominant theory was psychoanalytic. Mm-hmm. And I talk a lot about working with the parents and the patients. Also, not only did I hang around with the patients, but I also had access to the people who had first set up the Tourette's Association in Bayside, New York. Mm-hmm. And they were very helpful to me. And I met the Shapiros, who were the first ones in the United States, who argued this is an organic disorder and that a psychological disorder, they said, would be a waste basket definition. So I had a lot of people very interested in helping me solve the mysteries of Tourette's. And now that I read this over, I realize I could make other contributions, but I'm also working on a a childhood heart disease called Kawasaki disease, which I was recruited for when I was giving a talk on Tourette's syndrome at the University of California, San Diego, about pediatric causes of Tourette's syndrome. And afterwards, one of the uh, pediatric Pediatricians asked if I would work with her for a while on Kawasaki disease, which is totally different, but nevertheless, yeah, could use the same kinds of methodologies. So it's been a quite an interesting uh, trip for me. No, it absolutely sounds like it. And and one thing I was thinking about was how the the book was published in back in '99. And I'm curious if you were to write it today. If you would change or add anything, or I guess another way of asking this question is, if you were to come out with a new chapter for the book today, what would you like to say? I think the evidence of the uh, multiple etiology would be even stronger than before. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot more research and interventions through on the assumption that it's a post-encephalitic or a post 
infectious disorder. So I'll give you one example. I think that would explain what, how to look at this. And I have written, published some of this in other places, even as far away as Brazil. When I first started in Tourette's syndrome, the major treatment by pediatricians who weren't psychoanalytic was that there was a, some neurotransmitter disorder in the basal ganglia where the dopamine production is. And the treatment was to use heavy-duty meds, particularly Haldol. What I found, and, and I did follow these up with a, another one of my students who wrote a book on cursing and one of these patients, that it was very difficult for most of the patients after initially doing very well with Haldol to maintain themselves on it. In fact, I was able to interview all the first patients who were in New York who were uh, given Haldol. And it, it turned out that it was it made them zombie-like. Mm. So then they would have another medication for the other drink. So all these medications, right? And they sort of worked, but not for everyone. And the older ones who didn't work for sometimes would self-medicate often, particularly with tobacco, marijuana, and alcohol. And Mm -hmm. just think if it turns out to be post-infectious, I said to myself, that would mean our intervention would be totally different. We'd stop the antibodies to a strep infection, rheumatic strep, by cleaning their blood, cause plasmaresis, give me prophylax them on antibiotics, and, and also aspirin. Also, we wouldn't be making them, therefore, so much dependent on drugs that, although they worked a bit, they had a lot of bad side effects for a lot of the patients. So I think if I were to write more about it, it would be this, and I think I have written some more of this in the early 1990s. When I read it, I must admit, some this happens, I think, to all authors. I'd say, I don't know how I know that, right? Thank you for asking me to reread my own book. <laughs> well, I was rereading it over the last the last couple of days in preparation for this. I, I mean, the idea of multiple etiologies, I think, is getting a lot more traction these days. I, I know also it's being informed by genetics research, too, that we're finding all these different yeah. genetic profiles for people with it. And I know at Rutgers, they've identified over 500 unique genetic profiles that can lead to Tourette's. Not that the gene is the exclusive cause, but it's interwoven in that. You mentioned the post-infectious ideology of it. I did my undergrad at Yale, and you're probably familiar with Dr. James Leckman, who's there. Yeah, Yeah, he's done a lot of work in this. I actually set up a meeting with him while I was a student at an undergrad just to chat with him about this. This was very eye-opening to me to hear about the the cases he had worked with, believing this was something that, at least in in some percentage of our population, of the ticking and OCD population, it, it can be explained by early childhood strep infections and things like that. I can't tell you the number of times I had strep throat as a kid, at least 10 times. I remember the taste of liquid amoxicillin like nothing else because I was always on it. And same with my siblings. I I have three siblings. Two of them also have a Tourette diagnosis. So I've always been very curious about that. And I, one thing I found, I don't know if you can shed any light on this or have insight into this, but the post-infectious etiology hypothesis is kind of controversial in the, the Tourette research world. What's the reason for that? There's a lot of resistance so because people are so invested in, in two things. One is that not making it see as psychogenic, so seeing it as organic, and therefore thinking that organic would mean that there was a substrate that, that's the result of heritability. Mm. And the more you learn about the way these things interact, the more you realize that they not, don't actually cancel each other out. So, for instance, 
in serial strep infections, the danger comes not from the strep infection itself, from the bacteria, but from the antibodies to the bacteria, your own immune system, that attach to the basal ganglia and interfere with movements of the, the dopaminergic circuit. And so there can be a, a hereditary response to rheumatic strep. There can be several things coming together that can run in families. So I was reading over the chapter I wrote about that. And what I noticed in the book all the way through was how persistent this finding was that there was some relationship between rheumatic strep and different countries. And so it always was sort of there, but no one really followed it until the 1990s, I think, was really when it if you could interfere with the mechanism all the way through, dampen down the antibodies, then you would have an intervention, which for some, not all people have the same causes of Tourette's, not all runs in families, but for a substantial population, you'd be able to have interventions that had very small side effects. Now, some people, there's nothing else they can do. But the thing we became more worried about in Emory, but I was still working there on this, was the number of people that self-medicated because it was so difficult to stay on the medications, even though people titrated down a lot. And there can be a many of a variety of outcomes to a single insult, or there can be many insults that pre- present themselves as if they're one disease. And I think Tourette's is much, if you think about this, for a long time, Tourette's syndrome was seen as a, a rare disease. And part of the reason for that was that. Obsessive compulsive disorders, which seem to be very close to Tourette's often, were excluded from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual because they were looking for an absolutely clean example to do research on. So it would mean you could only do things on people that had certain kind of Tourette's, but only 14% of kids with Tourette's had just Tourette's, where the rest of them had a variety of things. So I think that's what I would do. I would work more with teams and and follow up on some of these patients we had. I was surprised when I read the book at how, this may sound immodest, but I'm not trying to, how well it stood up in the terms of the history of it. So I was fascinatingly reading my own book the last couple of days because of you, so I appreciate that. But back to the other point is that the definition of Tourette's, it's a syndrome, therefore has signs and symptoms. It's not always the same in each person that we don't really agree on what the population is of so people who we can diagnose. It's a part of the European Diagnostic Code, and Tourette's-like movements are put under obsessive compulsive disorders. In the mm. United States, they weren't until very recently because obsessive compulsive disorders was a psychiatric diagnosis, meaning organic. I think that the idea is to keep an open mind and not to look for a single cause for a complex disorder. Your your book explores a lot of the early psychoanalytic theories of Tourette. The, some of the earliest scholars in the field were attributing it to bad habits or lack of self-control or bad parenting. And while a lot of that is now kind of dismissed as it, there is more of that organic origin to it, we are revisiting s- these theories to some extent. I mean, we're seeing success with habit reversal training, cognitive behavioral therapy, especially CBIT. So some of these ideas around it being self-control, the premonitory urge, how much control do I really have over that? There's a balance there. And I'm not saying any one theory is entirely correct, but it is interesting how we are revisiting some of those older psychoanalytic ways of viewing this and treating it. Yeah, and other psychological ways. I think the thing is, though, as you read over this history of attitude, there was a tendency to blame patients, mm. right? For see them as weak or 
see them as exhibitionists, and some of the most famous people who treated them blame them rather than the Margaret Mahler, the whole chapter. She yeah. was like the dean of Tourette's syndrome. And when the patients didn't get any better, they said, well, that's a good thing. Because mm. if they cured it, then the, the tick itself is, a, is protection against some greater mental disorder, which is a really silly, ridiculous. But if you're living that milieu and get things published, you have to accept that set of Descriptions that excludes other kinds. The story of O, which is one of the chapters. Poor guy did everything he could. He was a successful manufacturer, but Miege and Fendel nevertheless blamed him for his tics. Mm-hmm. Right? And when he tried to commit suicide, they made light of it and almost made a joke of it, which was really horrible. This guy had done everything he could. When the 1980s, when the first real uses of the 1970s were for Aldo, when they were out there for the first time, people weren't blaming their patients. But remember Adam Seligman? Oh, yeah. yeah. And he, was a, he went to the first Tourette's meeting. He became a poster person for Tourette's. And he had incredibly florid symptoms and signs. So at first, he, be, he was recruited by them. But after a while, he became a liability because there was this attempt to make Tourette's a wider diagnosed disorder. And so they wanted to assure parents that not every case was going to be florid. So as a result, they would shun him off. And he actually, I, he died early. I had said of a heart attack, but I'm pretty sure it was something else. It actually, on this point, you ended the, the article you sent me on, on the, the, the cursing brain with uh, a really great statement that gets to the heart of what you're saying. You said, a well-meaning attempt to reassure parents that their diagnosed children will neither curse nor display other florid symptoms should not authorize us to neglect those who do. Love that. I mean, that's it. That hits the nail on the head there. Um, Yeah, and I think that's really my take-home message in my book, which is you have to have empathy with you. You can't blame your patients and you can't blame your failures on the patients themselves. You should keep an open mind. I mean, when you realize that we don't really even agree on the definition over time, it's hard to do a history if the definition mm. we're talking about changed over time. So it's a perfect disorder to learn about history, multidisciplinary approaches, problem solving. I think all my work is problem-based. I want to dive into some of the early history of Tourette. So you can teach me how to say the name. Georges Gila de la Tourette? Georges. So, oh, I could just say Georges. His name is not Tourette, as people put that, but Gilles de la Tourette. It's a French noble name. Gilles, G-I-L-E-S, de Tourette is his last name, T-O-U-R. The French have an incredible contempt for Americans. <laughs> One of the things he wrote was, in the early days, prognosis was very bleak. It was grim. He wrote that there is no hope of a complete cure. There's a quote, once a ticker, always a ticker. I'm grateful I was born in 1993. And even then, like when I was first diagnosed, my neurologist almost did put me on Haldol. I was growing up in rural Indiana. I don't think we we knew in, in the community I was in about some of the, the later latest treatments being used. But I, I would say, okay, being born in the 90s with ticks is way better than being born in the 1890s with ticks. If I were born with Tourette in the late 1800s, and let's say I had access to some of the best researchers and physicians of the time, what would treatment look like for me if it really believed that there's no complete cure? Would the focus just be on helping me develop my willpower to overcome tics? Or, or what, what would treatment even look like? Well, as you point out, it's to make a definition of Tourette's syndrome, because immediately when the typology was laid out, 
some of Charcot's other students attacked it, said no, it was wrong. But the thing is that the treatment at that point was hopeless because the definition of the disorder was we get worse and worse, like the Marquis mm-hmm. did here. But the trouble with that conclusion was that the patients themselves, he didn't have in the study, they didn't have enough patients that lived long enough, not that they were not alive, but they were the entire article is based on people who are in their 20s. Wow. Except he said down Pierre, who as I point out, no one ever saw anyhow. The treatment would be you'd be forced between and among these people, but the strongest voice that emerged from the 1890s by Miege and Fendel was that this disorder was a result of the lack of self-control of the people who demonstrated these clinical signs. So that wouldn't be very helpful at all, because since when doctors can't solve a problem, again, they often attack the people supposed to be treating them. Mm-hmm. Miege and Fendel... They, they also represent, as the whole Charcot group does, of late 19th century neurology. But mm-hmm. in, the, in some of that neurology, they don't have any good inter- interventions. So, for instance, Miege and Fendel, Miege himself, got, they all got, he write a second doctorate in France. And so he wrote, Miege wrote his second doctorate on the malady de la Chouifarante, which is, oh, did you, I guess you read this in the book. Mm-hmm. About blaming the Jews for make creating this, uh, except given where we live in right now, it may not be. Uh, I noticed that too. That was eye opening to me. Was the early anti semitism in the history of Tourette? I did not know that until I read your book. That was frightening to read. This was science. The idea that you went from doctor to doctor, and something was wrong with you. Question your physician. Right? There was a disease at this time called La Maladie de Papier, which was that people would come to see their physicians, their neurologists with little lists of all their symptoms and signs. And this was seen as a disease rather than as an attempt to get at the disorder itself. It's kind of obsessive compulsive disorder. It is. And I mean, this early idea in the 1800s that that the condition was degenerative, even Tourette had noted about it. He wrote that it started in early childhood. You get these tics. And then my understanding is the kind of assumption was that it ultimately evolves into coprolalia and gets yes. worse over life. Is that fair to say? That, that was the theory, and echolalia. So if you couldn't show echolalia. Things, yeah, then you might put it in a different category. It wasn't necessarily a better category. Mm-hmm. Different. So the degeneration argument that you inherited a weakened set of genes, if your grandfather was an alcoholic, then you would be an alcoholic. or you'd be, mm. This again was this idea that was inherited. But the da- there wasn't enough data to come to these conclusions. It's interesting when you look at the treatment at some of these other patients that I lay out, they don't really fit the diagnostic category. I think that's the one lesson learned from history, which is, and this is true of handedness or other things, is that you can't make claims of things over time if you don't have the data to show you the examples of them. So. Oh, and it also underscores the point of like multiple Tourette syndromes. Like we can't just write one succinct description that fits everybody. There is so much more to discuss. Join us for part two on Tuesday, March 12th for the rest of our discussion. We'll dive into the contributions of Georges Gilles de la Tourette and how the Tourette diagnosis evolved through various medical and psychological models over the 19th and 20th centuries. You don't want to miss this. Thank you for listening to The Uptick. 
brought to you by the New Jersey Center for Tourette Syndrome and Associated Disorders, empowering you to stretch the boundaries to live your best life. The NJ Center for Tourette Syndrome and Associated Disorders, NJCTS, its directors and employees assume no responsibility for the accuracy, completeness, objectivity, or usefulness of the information presented on this podcast. We do not endorse any recommendation or opinion made by any guest, nor do we advocate any treatment.